Welcome to Fresh Off the Boat. This is a podcast series, as you would already know. And uh, we're delighted to have Lipika Ramaswamy with us today, uh, all the way from San Francisco, if I'm correct, or where are you located at the moment? In theory, San Francisco. I'm with my sister in Austin, Texas. Okay, great. So uh, I was just looking up uh, the journey. I think it was way back in 2011 or 10 is when you started thinking of applying. And there was a gap year situation. Uh, and I know uh, meeting you and I just felt that energy that, okay, this student is really keen on doing more in math and also uh, so many other things. It'll be great to see her on a campus at a liberal arts school in particular. Uh, I'm not sure whether you were very comfortable about liberal arts colleges back then, but tell us three things about your Bryn Mawr experience when you graduated in 2015, when you look back now in 2020, what do you think was magical or interesting about Bryn Mawr? Yeah, so I think um, the one thing to caveat all of this is with is no matter where you go, you're going to find things that you're not going to like about a school, right? You can go to Yale or Harvard or whatever your choice of school, your top one school is, right? And you can find things that you don't necessarily like, especially like even if you think you're immune to culture shock, it it still happens to some extent, you know, in the smallest of ways. So like given the backdrop of all of that, now fast forward what like five years since I graduated and nine years since I started college, I think. The three, I guess the three best things that I carried with me from Bryn Mawr are first and most importantly, I guess for my career is I don't see myself as being representative of a gender in STEM. I know my capability. I know what I know what I like. I know what I dislike. And that really carries me through a lot of my career um, and like graduate school, everything, you know, it's. You don't see yourself as, oh, I'm that one woman in the room in the math class, or I'm that one woman at a conference on machine learning or computer science, whatever. Like, I belong there as much as anyone else, and I don't doubt myself. So that is probably the biggest thing all these years later. And I mean, this didn't happen overnight. It wasn't like I landed on campus, everyone there is, you know, a woman or gender non-binary. Uh, and you suddenly feel like, oh, I can do anything. But it's seeing other people develop around you, not necessarily in your field, but like really seeing people get comfortable in their own skin and then realize like, we're all women here. You don't even have to think about that barrier, which was pretty, I mean, it was pretty life-changing for me actually, now that I look back, like some of the things that I say in a room, some of the things that I say in a meeting, it's really because of that confidence that I got when I was studying math at Bryn Mawr. Um, so that's the first thing. Uh, the second is, I mean, this is probably true no matter where you go, but the sense of community. And sometimes you have to try really hard to foster that. But at Bryn Mawr, it was just, it came really, really easy. Um, I, I have some friends. I mean, I chat with a group of friends every Sunday night, and I have been doing that for five years now since I graduated. Every Sunday night, no matter what's going on, at least we connect. Um, and that sense of community really came from, well, it came from my dance group, but it also came from the fact that we all lived in the same place. Like I could literally like walk around from my room to like the furthest person's room and BJ's and whatever, you know, like everything is really close. Um, that close knit community and the sense of like the traditions that are involved, you know, these are things that women's colleges that 
they really pay attention to. Um, and the experience is just, it's really, it, it is elevated in my opinion. Um, there's that sense of community that you just don't get elsewhere. Um, and I, I mean, I've, I've felt this, like, you know, my boyfriend went to Duke and I see some of the similarities and differences, but he was in, you know, somewhat like a living group, which is somewhat similar, but then there was this huge other, like backdrop of this huge university and that made, made things different for him and made things different for me when I was visiting him. So just like, I, I think that close knit sense of community was really important to my development. Um, and finally, I think the alumni network is, it is really very strong. Um, I know a lot of schools have strong alumni networks, but I don't mean it for like, you know, oh, I got my career opportunity in computer science because of it. I mean it in any support that I need, being a woman outside of that controlled environment of Burma where you don't have to think about gender. Like when you have to start thinking about gender, how do you approach that? And my biggest support system has really been the Bryn Mawr community. It's great to hear this. Uh, also, I visited Bryn Mawr last year, pretty much around this time, graduation and all of that. So it's really surreal and, and, and just being on campus, uh, meeting Jen and other students working at the admissions. Uh, uh, it is fascinating. Uh, you just get the sense of the place, how it's built. Uh, it sort of promotes that uh, bonding. Uh, so fine, great. I think we'll move a little bit ahead now, looking at people that you found as mentors, knowingly, unknowingly, they sort of made an impact on your life, not necessarily mm -hmm. just at Bryn Mawr, but over these years. Uh, who would you think uh, a few people you would credit your way of being, learning, working? Yeah, so I'll start with working. Um, I worked as, as a consultant in DC for three years prior to grad school. And there I met, you know, like in any work environment, you'll meet people that you get along with and don't get along with. But one of my managers, it was very hierarchical. So like you knew your place pretty much as you started. But one of my managers was extremely inclusive in that he thought the decisions should be made by the entire team. Anyone working on a project should have an equal say in like what direction a project should take, what the outcome should be, you know, what to promise in a consulting project. Um, and that shaped the way that uh, I think of leadership and how to pass that forward. So really to feel like, you know, no idea is too small. Um, and I think that's really important to know when you step into the workforce, because like, obviously, like, I don't have the experience that he does, but just to know that he values me. Great. So but I'd like to interject here because, you know, very, very often when you have a very democratic structure in an organization as big as Ernst & Young, if that's what you're mm -hmm. referring to, um, yeah. you're probably an outlier leader, right? <laughs> yeah. how oh, <laughs> so how does it work for the rest of the groups or teams that don't have that uh, freedom? Yeah, it's pretty top down uh, in terms of decisions. So, you know, someone will decide like based on relationships, how you get projects or what projects you get and what projects you pursue. Sorry, that's our dog. Um, and I, yeah, so like someone at the top will decide like a partner or um, a, an executive director or someone and then like the work will trickle down. And obviously like as an analyst or a senior analyst, you're most hands-on with the work so you can influence what you present, but only to a certain extent. I think finding 
my voice in that was, uh, it, it took about a year, you know, to figure out like, this is what I can say. This is when I think like an analysis can be improved. Um, this is when I think what we're doing is absolute nonsense. Um, <laughs> and like when I really think um, like things are being done in an efficient manner and I want to learn more, like I want to learn how to be, how to manage work like this, you know, just sort of figure out which opportunities I get about the most was, uh, it, yeah, that, that was also interesting. But generally, so you, you also went to, uh, like you've completed, you're studying at Bryn Mawr and then you worked for three years at ENY and then also decided to do a master's in data science at Harvard University. Uh, so again, going linking it back to the question about people at universities or at uh, work, uh, what do you think, uh, how could you tell us a little bit about the decisions you made and maybe influencers who helped you? Yeah, so while I was at EY, um, I was doing a lot of work in statistics and econometrics. And what I found was that in the consulting world, as any consultant would know, like Microsoft Office products are your best friend. Um, and I found that working with large data sets, for example, like US census data or US tax records, doing that in Excel is just, it's simply infeasible. Um, and that was a project that I was staffed on and I had to quickly figure out how to improve the process. So there was like big models that were run in Fortran. So like <laughs> before my time, and I had to figure out how to convert that into something scalable that we could use to sell. And that's when I started to pick up Python. I had a few colleagues who were um, computer science majors in college. And so we pieced this all together. And it was very much like, you know, I was just picking up pieces here and there, whatever you find on the internet. Like if you found code on the internet and then you used it, you wrote it. It's basically that. So going through that process made me realize I want a more formal education in computer science and more specifically in methods that can be applied to data sets, large or small, but just having a principled approach to doing that because my undergraduate degree was in pure maths. And that teaches you like really good logic, good way to structure your thoughts and structure any argument really. Um, but taking that to the step of, well, how to use computer science to solve problems. Um, so that that's what led me to data science. Um, I think along the way in getting me there um, were really like, you know, mentors like the one that I mentioned who was very much like, all right, what do you think should be done? How do you think you can approach this? And when I said, oh, just script it in Python, I'll figure it out. He was very supportive of that. But while I was at Harvard, I think actually some of my, well, I will say that I drew a lot of inspiration from my collaborators. So anyone or most people, well, actually anyone that I worked on, uh, worked with on projects, uh, I would say had a significant impact on the way that I code, the way that I structure my code, and ultimately the way that I structure problems. Great, great. So if you were to also now tell us a little about bit more about your being, you know, who you are. I know you were a dancer back then, also involved in uh, impact work in high school. Uh, how did all of that evolve? And what are your current interests and who supported those interests further? Yeah, it's interesting, you know, because like when you travel around the world and you move your home like multiple times in 10 years, you really get to learn how to live with yourself. 
um, and like what you like and you dislike about your way of being. And for me, immediately after college, what became clear was that I valued uh, connection with the co with the community. So wherever I was living, I lived in DC first, and I realized, you know, like I have some friends here, and I know people from college, but I don't really know things like where does my food come from, you know? Like at home, you know, there's a sabzi wala who comes outside the house, or you, you know, you go to mother dairy, you know, the bhaiya who's been sitting there for years. But how do you form that connection? And for me, like food is one of the places where it all comes together, um, especially since I took up athletics in college. And that was not something that I did in school. But I was an athlete. Uh, I rode crew and I saw some pretty big changes to like the way that I viewed food and how it fuels my body. Um, and I'm still an athlete. I still run long distances and do a lot of other crazy stuff. But that is the one thing that... I feel quite passionately about. So in DC, I was working at farmer's markets. Um, so doing a lot of the coordination um, and just making sure, you know, like, oh, I'm sorry, dogs are not allowed here. But like still, you know, you're part of the community, you can interact with people, interact with people, you know, who grow these vegetables. It's, it's pretty phenomenal, you know, to talk to people who do different things, not necessarily what you do in your everyday life. Um, so I find that to, I've found that to be very rooting um and now that i moved to san francisco uh well i moved to san francisco and then i moved to texas but uh let's assume i live in san francisco um to feel more like a part of the community i've been working with an organization called y -Corp, um and they do social and they have a social impact fellowship where you basically partner with a nonprofit, um and there's this very defined project uh, that someone else on the team, like someone volunteers to lead um, and they define the scope of it, but then you get to work on parts that you're a good fit for. So that's that's interesting, keeps you rooted, um, connected with the community, goes a little bit further than just, you know, being another techie in San Francisco. Fascinating. Uh, we'll go back to uh, work again. I know it's not boring for you, and but data science, mm -hmm. scientist, the word sort of sounds like, uh, okay, do you know what's happening with Zoom? What is this whole data privacy thing? <laughs> uh, and why do you know consumers or users of such platforms don't know uh, and they should know? Uh, how, how do you, uh, so at your work, what is it that the company does, LeapFrog, and uh, answers to such uh, current COVID online sort of life that everyone's leading? Uh, what should we know? <laughs> yeah, so um, the company I'm at is LeapFrog, and um, what we do is we build scalable differential privacy software, and that's a mouthful, but I'll explain it. So when you think about privacy, you might think of, oh, I put some of my information out there, like I wanna make sure someone doesn't misuse it. That's one context. Another context is, suppose I have, all right, I'll use the example, a very commonly used example of what used to happen on Google Translate about five years ago. So if you input, some nonsense string, like let's say AG, 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 okay? And you wanted to translate it from Albanian to English, you would get a sentence from the Bible, which is odd, right? But that tells you that Google's um, language models are trained on the Bible because it's the most widely translated text in the world or the most widely translated text that is useful for training a language model. 
that in itself is not problematic. But think about if you want Google Translate to know how to translate things from emails, right? Like you use Google Gmail as a free service. In theory, they have your data. Like it's it could it's encrypted, but it wasn't at a certain point. And now, what if that data was used to train this model? And you typed in, you know, AF, 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 and you got a sentence from an email that you wrote maybe 15 years ago. Creepy, so, yeah. yeah, it is really creepy. And the thing is, that it's not intentional. It's not at all intentional. Like that was that there's in most cases, it's not intentional, especially in the case of a company like Google. It's just the nature of machine learning models really is, or deep learning models too, is that they will learn their inputs the best that they can. And in the case of words, it's the most apparent. In the case of images too, you know, in the case of numbers, it's a little bit harder. You need to think a little bit, but it's these kind of weaknesses of models come out. So it's very much uh, a threat. And this is, you know, the fancy example of a fancy model used at Google. But now if you think about um, just simple, you know, you have a data set, you de-identify it, suppose it's your healthcare records, okay? And you remove any health identifiers from it, maybe, you know, and in the US, like your social security number and your Aadhaar number, whatever, any identifier. And then you share that data. Of course, no one knows your name, no one knows anything, but they just know a lot of information about you. There are scenarios under which an adversary can aggregate that data or do some like perform some analysis on it and recover information about you if they had some auxiliary knowledge. So if I was specifically targeting this thing, oh, I want to know the specific thing about Arjun's health records. Anyway, I had access to the data set. I could probably do it. Um, and I've, I've done this in like empirical settings, um, just as proof of concept. So it's definitely possible. So the idea of differential privacy is really, how do you enable analyses like this without leaking that information? Um, and the answer is quite simple. It's by adding some noise. But how much noise? That's the mathematical detail that really needs to be translated from a theoretical idea to a, an applied concept. And that's what my company does. It is, how do you make Fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot. It's uh, a yearful but it is growing increasingly important, especially now that a lot of data sets about patients are being shared um, with regards to COVID. And um, with more telemedicine, there will be a lot more leakages, I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, very interesting. I'm sure there'll be students who are listening in at some point, uh, very keen to know more, and I'll probably find a way to do a webinar or something with you <laughs> on these topics. Um, Again, now going back to you, what are your goals? What do you think? Are you thinking ahead? Uh, uh, it seems that you're liking the work that the company does. Uh, what's next? What's next is, uh, well, eventually I'll get back to San Francisco. And I think there is something unique about the culture in the Bay Area that I didn't experience in, you know, even in a city like Boston. I worked at a small startup there too. And you don't, uh, there's just so many other things going on, whereas in San Francisco, it is very tech focused. And while that can feel suffocating, I think also it presents a lot of opportunities to really understand like how people build uh, these giant companies, right? Like that's a, that's a big question mark for me. And I talk to my CEO about this a lot um, and my CEO, because I'm just curious, like how do you take an idea that was so theoretical 
and turn it into something that's now being used by some of the largest banks in the, in North America. So how how did they go about that process? And I you know I kind of know I see it in the code base a little bit, but just to understand like how do you take a step back from that? You know that's that's the thing that I'm curious about. Of course, I have a lot to learn in the realm of you know software engineering and privacy engineering, working with data scientists across different industries and different companies who have varying levels of comfort with Python or scripting languages, you know? So yeah, I think what you mentioned about the Bay Area being the mecca of, you know, innovation and tech and also with that comes its downside, the underbelly, the homeless population, crazy rents. With COVID, do you see some changes? I know companies have announced like work from home, uh, indefinite work from home and all kinds of things. Uh, what are the few things you would like to change about like, the Bay Area? Well, first of all, I think it does a very good job in terms of public transport. Like, there are just no good options. Also, public transport in America is quite honestly pretty <laughs> terrible. Uh, I mean, it leaves it leaves you wanting for like a German train or something, or like a Japanese bullet train. Like, I just I need that speed to get somewhere, um, especially in the Bay. Uh, and that leads me to think about like the environmental impact that a lot of communities have in the Bay Area. You know, like this is very clearly visible in Los Angeles, but in the Bay Area, which is generally always cloudy, you know, um, it's a little bit it's difficult to see when you just look outside the window. But I think as companies move to a virtual um, working situation and permanent virtual working um, environment. What impact will that have on the environment? And is that something that is sustainable? And I know there are a lot of environmental groups that are trying to answer this question. Of course, it is difficult under the backdrop of the current administration. I mean, that's something that I, I don't think I'm the only you know Indian living in the United States who has that opinion. But it is a big concern because if you if you have administrations around the world who don't believe in climate change, then how can you actually affect any change uh, in your you know day to day life? How can you make sure that any changes that you make in your day to day life will actually have a broader impact? Um, but definitely, more people working from home reduces emissions. You know that's just a fact. Um, hopefully, it'll continue. Uh, We'll see what happens in terms of uh, social justice and equity in the Bay Area. It, uh, it's, it's not uh, okay. It's not real. Great, great. So uh, now we move to uh, rapid fire questions, <laughs> and this is right. uh, the first one is like um, three strengths uh, and basically three adjectives which describe or define those strengths. What would you pick as your three strengths? My three strengths. Focus, grit, um, and meditative capability. Oh, that's, that's, that's a new one I've heard in all of these <laughs> interviews so far. <laughs> How would you link uh, grit and meditative capabilities to help you solve a situation if you can reflect back and say learning from a failure or a disappointment or embarrassment? Uh, wait, can you clarify the question? So, yeah, so like linking grit and meditative capabilities to solve a problem you were having with yourself, maybe, or with uh, other people, or, or a failure, or a failure, a mistake that you made. 
an example. Yeah, I mean, you know, these are, it doesn't have to be big. I think something that I encounter in my job because I started four months ago and half of that has been remote. Um, but something that happened to me recently was, or something that I did recently was I asked, you know, people say there are no stupid questions. I asked a stupid question, like anyone with a brain would know that. And I asked it on this like very public forum. And I was just, you know, I was kind of shocked when I saw it written that you can't take it back. Like it's there, it's out there. And then when you realize, oh my God, like I knew that, or I could have figured that out if I just thought about it for a second longer and everyone saw it. And I was like, oh gosh, I'm embarrassed. Like, I don't know. I don't know how to go back from this. And the way that I feel any situation can be turned around is, you know, you made a mistake. I mean, I, def I define that as a mistake. You made a mistake, you write down all the things that you did before that happened, you write down all your realizations after, and then you say, okay, this is never gonna happen again because I have this checklist. Like I don't awesome. have any memory problems, so I'm good. Yeah, and when you talk about meditative capabilities, it's kind of a process. It's not just sitting in sitting in whatever, shavasana, or lying down in shavasana or something. Uh, but I'd be curious to know about uh, your connection with uh, athletics, running, and developing this mindset. Do you have a routine? Yeah, I try to run. It's a little difficult um, during these times because I run with a mask and it's it's not very comfortable. Um, but I try to run twice a week and I find runs to be quite meditative actually uh, because you get time to yourself. Like I don't put music in my ears. Um, I just go without a phone. Like I have my washer track things and that's it. And you go out, you know, you like breathe fresh air. That's a big part of it. Breathing fresh air is just, you know, it's highly underrated when you're going about your everyday life. But when you can take a step back, especially in times like these and realize like, wow, okay, it is such a privilege to be outside. It's such a privilege to have, you know, see skies like in Delhi, my God, like you can see the sky. Wow. And you can breathe air that's significantly cleaner. Wow. Like exactly. that's Definitely. Mm -hmm. We see that as a huge change and a blessing. Uh, going back to high school and applications and the work you <laughs> did uh, at our office in Munirka. Yeah. When we didn't have furniture, it would pretty much be mm -hmm. on the floor uh, sitting and working. Very Steve Jobsian, but uh, it was fun. Uh, tell me, uh, yeah, about the whole application process and what advice would you give high school kids uh, thinking of college now? Yeah, this is a big one because, well, here's my number one thing. And I said this earlier, you're going to find something to hate no matter where you go. So just make sure that the decision that you make, you make it for the right reasons. Because at the end of the day, you're going to be living by yourself, right? You might have a family support network or friends to support you. But at the end of the day, like you have to be proud of who you are when you enter college, when you're going through college, and when you get out of college, right? Like that's the only way that you, you'll know that it's worth it. So I think like finding something that you actually believe in, you know, like at the time, yeah, I believed in some things. And I can't necessarily say that I still believe in them, but I will say that I believe in them passionately enough that it drove me to see a future where I could actually have an impact. I think that is really key and like not fake stuff, you know, like if you care about the environment, why, why do you care about the environment? Like, do you feel like you're suffocating in Delhi? Okay. What's next? Like, you know, millions of people have, ha people have had these thoughts, but it's not like what makes you different, whatever, that's fine. But 
how do you see it differently? Or how do you see this as being the most important thing facing mankind in the next 10 years? Well so said. Not, you know, we yeah. had students in the previous panels kind of voice similar things. Be authentic, be yourself, uh, and do something about you, things you care about. And I think uh, just having an excuse that, oh, it's lockdown or it's, um, you know, I'm still 17. Those are interesting things, but uh, they cannot help you uh, define who you are. So you have to get up and do something about it, even at a small scale, but execute it well with passion. Tell your story well. And we keep telling that to students. Uh, it is definitely uh, something you can take ownership of this journey. But what are your fondest memories of working with us or not so fond memories, let's just say? I think it really helped me structure, well, first of all, the schools that I was interested in and to dial in on what the reasons were that I was interested in them. Because, um, I mean, you made me be very vocal about exactly what it was that I liked about a school and not just like wishy-washy like wishy answers didn't fly. Um, so like, oh, why? Because it's number one on US news? No, next. Like, that's not a good enough reason. Um, I think that was just really knowing like why I'm writing something or asking me, oh, why are you writing this? Like, why do you think this is important? Why is this a fond memory? Why do you think this will like, well, like why do you think you belong at Burnmark? Why? You know, just asking me that question before I start writing. It's like, it's so much easier to talk, you know? Like people like talking about themselves, it's just a thing. And when you get people to talk about themselves, like the ideas really flow. So right now, if you told me to sit down and write an essay, I probably would do it. <laughs> That's great, <laughs> super. Okay, one last question. Influencers, we've talked about people and uh, at work, etc. But do you follow anyone like online or YouTube channels, authors, etc.? I am a big fan of investigative journalism. I think there are, I don't watch that many videos these days because it's just like sensory overload for me. But I would say um, I read some phenomenal books in the last few years um, in terms of entrepreneurship, Bad Blood by, let you get her name. Um, there's is the one about Theranos. Um, I also really enjoyed Bottle of Lies, which is about the pharmaceutical industry in the United States. And... Uh, in India, so on like generic drugs. Um, I am currently reading, uh, it is a book on, gosh, I forgot the name. Uh, it's by Rachel Maddow, and it's about the oil industry, specifically uh, the rise and fall of Russian oil. And I think these books are really important because it gives you, you know, like journalism is difficult, and investigative journalism is even more difficult because people are trying to uncover things that are being hidden like that's just what it is being a policeman or being an fbi officer or being an intelligence anywhere in the world is also incredibly different because a lot of things are classified so the way that these writers are able to distill things down it keeps things real for me it's like yo, this is my one side of the world like this is one little pocket in austin texas where i'm living but look at all this other stuff that's happening all around and really keeping my eyes open. News is one thing, but these stories that take years to weave, you know, and these are real life things, like really knowing them and really understanding the depth of them can help you appreciate what others do. Your answers really got me hooked on to figure out what these books are about, investigative journalism. I've, I've read Naomi Klein. Does that qualify? Like this uh, the shock doctrine uh, i don't know if you heard about naomi but yeah it, it's a it's an interesting take on capitalism and all kinds of 
connections to what's bad in the world today, <laughs> including healthcare, <laughs> oil industry, everything else. Uh, so uh, great! It is so much fun having this conversation after what 2015, like 25, five years now. Uh, but it seems like <laughs> just the other day we met. So thank you, thank you for being who you are and spreading joy and uh, also doing great work. Uh, we'll be in touch soon and uh, all the best for the future. <laughs> thank you, Arjun. And like, I'm always open for questions and anything related to, you know, especially women in engineering and technology, I feel strongly um, about more representation and especially more Indian representation, because let me tell you, I work with 20 male Indian engineers. It, it is a challenge sometimes. Noted indeed. I think uh, <laughs> especially when uh, we were looking back at this week, the menstrual hygiene, uh, day on the 28th our team was always thinking and by the way we are two male members in the team and we have 14 women in our organization now so we have grown and we are we've got this whole idea of and this fresh off the boat uh, the the term as well as the idea and the execution of putting the podcast together is all being done by four amazing women on on our team so i'm just the mouthpiece but i could very soon replace myself and have them uh, lead these discussions so yeah thank you thank you so much uh, for all that you stand for bye bye